You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. If you have a Bible, please turn to the book of Exodus chapter Exodus chapter 20 and also John chapter 8. Exodus 20, John 8. Everybody okay? Feels still tense in here already. So let's... I don't know, I'm just saying. Um, let, me, uh, let me read this to you, and then let me pray. Ask God to help us in our time. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Got it? Cool. All right. Um, John 8, verse 1, actually starting in chapter 7, verse 53, but uh, they went each to his own house, verse 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them, and the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, And placing her in the midst of them, they said to him, the Pharisees said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act, the very act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, to kill her publicly. So, uh, what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus, you kind kind of see here very dramatically, Jesus dramatically bends down and writes wrote with his finger on the ground. And they continued to ask him, and he stood up, and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when they had heard it, when they heard what he said, when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up, and said to her, woman, this, this, this term of endearment, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. God, you are Holy. Set apart. Who can stand before you, God? If it wasn't for your grace and your mercy, no one could stand. And Lord, this topic of sex is sacred, Lord. It's it's holy ground. We're literally walking on holy ground as we talk about these these issues, this topic, God. And we ask for your help, Lord. I ask if anyone here feels the sense of condemnation that's come from the church or condemnation from their own conscience, whatever, Lord, I pray that, that all of that, Lord, as we begin to discuss these things and talk about your word, all of that, Lord, we would, it would be brought all before Jesus. And I pray, God, that you would, you would bring us before Jesus today. 
all of us, exposed completely. And that we would hear your voice and we would hear your word today, God. I know that, God, I, I can talk about ethics and rules and what, all this stuff until I'm blue in the face. And I, it won't change a single heart until you do that, God. By your spirit, you open up your word to someone, you speak to them, and it's like this woman standing next to you, God. She just sees you, and it's it's only then when we encounter you. So I pray that you would move, that you would speak today. You give us faith to hear. And I I submit my throat, my mouth, and my heart to you, and I ask that you would anoint me, God. I need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible has a sex ethic. Last week, we said that, and I said, I I can't apologize for the Bible's sex ethic. It's there. As you read through Scripture, it's there. I can't apologize for it. What I can apologize for is the way that that churches have used sex in saying who's in and who's out of the church, as if the most important thing about you is your sexuality. And I don't believe that there's a bigger public record in the church of hypocrisy than this issue of sex and sexuality. I'll confess that. I believe due to this hypocrisy in the church, Christ's followers have been unwilling to have civil discussion about sexual standards in our society. We're afraid of it. As soon as it's brought up, we know that we are ourselves hypocrites or we don't know how to answer. And so we don't even want to have the dialogue. If we were honest with ourselves and with the statistics, there is not a lot of radical purity and holiness when it comes to sex in the church. There is, however, compromise and shame. And so last week, we said that we as a church, now I can't speak for all the churches, but for this church here, we as a church need to reconsider what we believe about sex and what we believe about sexuality, until those beliefs that we've wrestled through and talked about, until those beliefs become convictions, deep-seated convictions. And then we, as a church, need to practice what we profess and confess where we struggle. And only then can we re-engage the culture in a respectful dialogue about all aspects of human behavior. Because the Bible has a sex ethic, and this, this, this ethic is rooted in the story the Bible tells about sex. The Bible has a sex ethic, and what you need to do is you need to root that ethic deep in the story of Scripture. And last week, I told you that story. We began in Genesis and went through the law and what the law pointed to. We're in this small series on the Ten Commandments, and we went into the teachings of Jesus and the writings of Paul and said that everything, everything, the laws, the prophets, the teachings of Jesus, the writings of Paul, the New Testament, everything points back to this. Genesis 2, 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. What Jesus does, what Paul does, what the Bible does, he points every... This is why when you, when you read the sexual ethics in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, there's things like... It, it, like it, is, it was written, uh, man shall leave his father and mother, or this one flesh talk that Paul always talks about, becoming one with the other person. It all points back to this. The Bible might be naive enough to believe that Jesus can take us back to the way we were created to live. This is what all of Scripture does. It doesn't just go, well, this is where we're at now. We have to, like, this is kind of where we're at. This is just accepted norms. It doesn't do that. 
It presses us deeper in. It presses us all the way back to the way that God made us, the way that God created us. This is what it does. And so what happens is, is that, you know, sometimes there's, there's people that, that, that come to Christ. There's maybe a, a relationship or something that happens, and, and they, they feel vulnerable and exposed, and like my life is falling apart, and they turn to Christ. People that lost, lose jobs or something happens and they, they turn to Jesus. A lot of times they turn to Jesus and they go, God, I have this, this thing and, I, and, and I'm broken and I need you to come and heal me. And then he does. And it's not like God goes, okay, cool. That was good. That was fun. Um, I healed you. So I'm here. Whenever you need me, just call. You know, that's not, that's not what God does. We go to him with uh, a breakup. We go to him with something, and he never stops the work that he began in us. And so we go to him for a broken relationship, but he completely renews and completely redeems our whole sexual identity. Completely is trying to bring it back to this. So if you think that God's just going to stop somewhere, like, oh, I went to him, and he kind of like did the thing, and he forgave me, and I felt good about it, and I left. God doesn't stop the work that he's begun in us. He's bringing everything and everyone, pushing everyone back to this. This is what every law does. This is what every, this is what every teaching does. This is what every writing does. Jesus means what he says when he tells us to pray on earth as it is in heaven. This is what he's pushing us back to. These verses are where all biblical sexual ethics hang on, here, on these verses here in Genesis 2, 24 and 25. The story of Scripture, the story, the story the Scriptures teach is that sex was created to be part of the holistic reality of marriage. This is what we talked about last week. And this is, let me just give you a pick, the biblical holistic sexual reality. Here, here it is. Procreation, partnership, pleasure. Okay, this is like the holistic reality of what God's created, sex and sexuality in, the, in marriage to be, P- procreation, partnership, and pleasure. And I believe that these are all self-evident. I think they're obvious. Sex can make babies. Sex can, have, can be radical, relational oneness and intimacy. This is sometimes what we search for while giving our bodies in sex. Sex can be extremely satisfying. All these things are self-evident. The problem is we can't just remove the pleasure aspect or any other aspect from the holistic reality that sex is to live in. The Bible has a holistic view of sex and sexuality, and we can't just remove a part of it. We can't just go, oh, I want the pleasure part. Oh, I want the partnership part, and we remove that from the reality that it was created in. C.S. Lewis says it's like isolating the pleasure of eating, chewing, and spitting food out again. The joy of food, and we know this, we live in a very foodie city, the joy of food is part of the greater reality of nourishment and energy and digestion. You can't just remove this process and just take out the pleasure. We try to do that, and that's called an eating disorder. And what C.S. Lewis says, and what the scriptures say, is that we have a sexual disorder. That's our problem. We are isolating sex from its holistic reality. So what I want to do today is from that biblical sex story in Genesis 2, and as a people who live in this story, I want to to form an ethic that is rooted in and arises out of this story. So first, what do I mean by ethic? When I say, well, I'm going to develop, we're going to try to develop here in our church a sex ethic, what do I mean by ethic? What I mean by that is, what are the moral principles and values that govern us as a people of God? What are the principles and the values that should govern us as a people of God? Or, or, to, or, to, or to state it as a question, how should we believe and think 
and behave and live as a people of God. That's what I mean by sexual ethic. There are ways that we as a people of God are to conduct ourselves inside the church and outside the church as it pertains to sex and sexuality. This is our ethic. Now, I know you may reject this ethic as someone who doesn't believe, but I want to at least be clear about what this ethic actually is that you may be rejecting. Like, yeah, I reject that. Let's just talk about what it is that you might actually be rejecting, and that's what I want to do today. So I want to I help the church recover, help us recover a robust sexual ethic that takes, that takes a biblical understanding of two things. Actually, one thing, but said in two different ways. Sexual holiness and sexual wholeness. Now, there's this, I think it's the same point. It's like a one-point sermon. But it's said in two different ways. I think they, they kind of intermingle. They kind of dance around one another. Sexual holiness and sexual wholeness. What does it mean to be holy sexually? But what does it also mean to be whole sexually? So first, sexual holiness. Here's, let, me, let me give to you, here's the sexual holiness summed up in the New Testament. Here it is summed up for everyone. So you know, what is sexual holiness? What is God calling the church to sexually? Here it is, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For this is the will of God. Okay, I mean, that's a, a common question that we ask. Like, what is God's will for my life? It's just, here it is, right here. Your sanctification This is God's will for you, that you abstain from sexual immorality. We'll get into what that word means in a second. That each one of you know how to control, some of you guys need to circle that word, control his own body, her own body in holiness and honor. There are so many people that come forward for prayer and go, could you pray that God takes this away, this temptation away? Like, I I mean, I've prayed that before, and I've prayed that for people, and it's never worked. Like, you prayed for me, and I have no sexual desire at all. Like, that's not going to happen. And do you really want that? I don't know. I don't, it's just weird. It's just a weird thing to pray. What does God do, though? Like, I just want this temptation to go away. What does God give us? A spirit of self-control. That's what God gives us. It's like, God, take this away. It's like, no, I'm going to pray that God gives you self-control, because that's a fruit of the Spirit. And, and God will give you self-control. And this is what Paul says. Learn how to control your own body in holiness, being set apart for God in honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrong his brother in this matter. Now, look what Paul does here. He makes it a communal issue. It's, it's a communal issue. Sex is not this private thing. You're like, oh, just whatever. You know, it's me alone or me and one other person or whatever. It's just a closed door, whatever. It, Paul brings it out in the open and goes, actually, it's a community issue. You could wrong your brother. You could wrong your church. You could wrong the body of Christ. He develops this later on, and um, he also develops this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Because the Lord is an avenger of all things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity. Now, what's so interesting here is the two things that you get more often than not in, in, in biblical counseling is what is God's will for my life and what has God called me to? It's like it's all right here. It's really, it's God's will for your life is your sanctification. He's called you to holiness. He's called you not to impurity, but holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, if you're like, oh, whatever, you're not disregarding a pastor or the apostle Paul, but God who gives you his spirit. Now, we have a very modern way of shortcutting our evaluation of holiness. I'm just going to come out right out and say this. This is, 
we have a way in the church to our shame of shortcutting our evaluation of holiness. And we call them sexual identity categories. And it usually goes something like this, and I say this to our shame. It usually goes something like this. Heterosexuality is good. Homosexuality is bad. Janelle Paris, in her book, The End of Sexual Identity, has this wonderful illustration she uses with her students in anthropology class that she teaches at Messiah College. She starts the class, she brings in two brown paper bags filled with groceries. And she puts them on her, on her like, desk thing, whatever. And, she, and, and the, the, there's just blank paper bags that are filled with groceries. And she opens up the class like this. Okay, class, which bag would you choose? And she calls on someone. Which bag would you choose? And the students are pretty keen. They're like, well, you can't make an informed choice because I don't know what's in the bags or why I'm choosing one. That's what she says. One of her students will normally answer back. I can't choose what's in the bag. I don't know what's in them. And so she says, okay, well, can you say which bag is good and which bag is bad? Calls on another student. That student says, no, I, I need to know what's inside the bags in order to know what's, if it's good or bad. So then she does something pretty dramatic. She takes the bags and she turns them around and each bag has a label on it. One of them is labeled homosexuality and the other is labeled heterosexuality. And she says this, let's try again. Which is good and which is bad? Let me break from the illustration real fast. For most people in the church, this is all they need to make an informed decision on what is good and what is bad. This is all they need. This is all the information they need. Oh, label, done, good, bad. Reject, accept, immediately, immediately. We, can, we do that as a church. We just like judge immediately. Her students were all the wiser. One student said, it's not that simple. There are good and bad elements to each depending on the situation or the person. So the professor, Janelle Paris, pressed a little bit. She said, okay, try this. Based on these labels, what can you tell me about the items in the bags? Based on these labels, what's in the bag? One student said, and then they're getting, the students are getting kind of angry now. They're like, we don't know what's in the bags. How could I evaluate what I haven't seen? And then she removes the groceries, their cans and boxes, which are relabeled with words like desire and fantasy and behaviors and relationships and memories and hopes and thoughts and health and marriage. And as she's unpacking these bags, groceries were exactly the same in each bag. And then she writes this. Viewed from the sexual identity perspective, a Christian heterosexual may seem to have godly sexuality, have, a godly, have godly sexuality. When their sexuality is unpacked, however, there may be important areas for healing or growth. The blanket statement that, quote, heterosexuality is good may even hinder this person from facing sexual struggles. Guys, this is so true. This is true even in this city. Well, you know, at least I, like, I, at least I sin in this like Adam and Eve sort of paradigm. At least I don't like do, at least my sins are like this. And you're so broken sexually and you'll never deal with it because you're like, but I'm, I'm good, right? I'm the good. 
This may even hinder the person from facing sexual struggles. On the flip side, in conservative settings, a Christian homosexual may be written off as sinful or defective, though this person may have maturity and health in their sexuality that could benefit others. And I've met several of those people. Sexuality is therefore better approached at the general level of humanity and the specific level of individuality without mediating level of sexual identity. And this is this the, I couldn't highlight this sentence enough like before it started tearing through the page. We should all carry identical bags labeled beloved from which we unpack the unique elements of our sexual lives. You are beloved of God. Now, what does this have to do with sexual holiness? Like, okay, so you read a quote and like read First Thessalonians. Like, what does this have to do with sexual holiness? See, we make up sexual categories, but the Bible only knows two sexual categories. And they're not what you think. They are not heterosexuality and homosexuality. The two biblical sexual categories are chastity and porneia. Those are the two biblical sexual categories. Everything falls under those two things. Chastity, porneia, that's it. This is how the Bible describes and begins to explain a sexual ethic. Human category is beloved of God, created in the image of God, image bearers of God. As the beloved of God, living under that, we are to live chaste, holy lives and reject porneia. Now, what is porneia? You're like, that sounds like pornography. Very good. (laughs) The sexual behavior that Jesus and the New Testament writers want Christians to avoid is, in the New Testament Greek, the word porneia. It's used 55 times in the New Testament. It's the essence of what the adultery command and the Ten Commandments is about. Porneia translated can mean fornication. It can mean lust. Generally, it's the word translated sexual immorality. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus indicates that porneia includes adultery. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul suggests that porneia also includes incest. Porneia is every kind of extramarital, unlawful, unnatural sexual intercourse, fornication, sexual immorality, prostitution. Think of it like a junk drawer, which contains everything other than sexual activity in marriage. And by marriage, I mean the publicly pledged, exclusive, permanent, covenantal union of husband and wife for life. And the reason porneia is condemned is because it robs the full joy from what God has designed for human fulfillment. The reason why porneia is condemned in Scripture is because it breaks this. Therefore, a man shall leave and be united with his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Porneia breaks this. Now let me get really practical for a second. Porneia includes things like pornography, obviously. See, pornography teaches, that you, teaches you that real bodies aren't good enough. Porneia, uh, pornography robs marital sex, whether you're married or not. And when you add to that masturbation, which teaches that sex happens outside of a relationship, where it's about your gratification and yours alone, those pictures are for your fulfillment. It ruins created marital sex. This is not real sex. 
There's no self-sacrifice for the other. There's no serving your life covenantal partner. It's not stewarding and caring for your body, your mind, and your soul, and their body, and their mind, and their soul. That's what sexual unity was supposed to be about. Pornography completely destroys that and builds in your life these horrific habits when, when you get into marriage, they're, just gonna ruin, they're not going to be good. Porn turns sex into something simultaneously fantastic and abusive. It removes it from the relational unity and reality of marriage and imports outside standards into the bedroom. And thereby it objectifies whatever living and breathing fleshy person you will one day really have sex with. Pornea also includes premarital sex. Not only does premarital sex isolate one part of the holistic reality of sex, but very practically premarital sex teaches you that sex is all about the thrill. Timothy and Kathy Keller write really well on this in their book, Meaning of Marriage, when they said, one of the reasons we believe in our culture today that sex should always and only be a result of great passion is that so many people today have learned how to have sex outside of marriage. That's a profound statement. We have learned to have sex outside of marriage. And this is a very different experience than having sex inside marriage. Outside of marriage, sex is accompanied by desire to impress or entice someone. It's something like the thrill of the hunt. When you're seeking to draw someone in, you don't know. It injects, injects risk, uncertainty, and emotions. If great sex, quote, great sex is defined this way, then marriage, a, quote, just a piece of paper, will indeed stifle that particular kind of thrill. But this defines sexual sizzle in terms that would be impossible to maintain in any case. You can't maintain that thrill, getting to know one another, like just young love sort of, you can't maintain that in any relationship over the long period of time. You have to keep changing partners. The fact is that the thrill of the hunt is not only, kind of, not only the kind of thrill or passion available, nor is it the best. So what does Scripture call us to? If it calls us away from porneia, what does it call us to? It calls us to chastity. Now, no one uses chastity. When's the last time you said chastity? <laughs> like, we just don't use that. Like, what, so what's your sexual, you know, stance chastity? Like, no one says that. Like, I wish you would start saying that because you have to explain what that means. Like, chastity. It needs to be recovered. And this is what it means. In, in Lauren Winter's book, she writes this. What is Chastity. This is going to be really strange, but it's awesome. Listen to this. One way of putting it is that chastity is doing sex in the body of Christ. Super weird, but wait. (laughs) Doing sex in a way that befits the body of Christ and that keeps you grounded and bounded in the community. That means sex only within marriage, which means in turn abstinence if you're not married and fidelity if you are. See, the New Testament never considers sexual conduct a matter of purely private concern between two consenting adults. According to the Apostle Paul, everything that we do as Christians, including all of our sexual practices, affects the whole body of Christ. Each member of the church, each member of this church has a responsibility for the spiritual well-being of the community as a whole. The the, Spiritual responsibility does not fall on my shoulders solely or the the song selection of the worship team or the pastors. It's all of our duty as the body of Christ. It falls under on all of our shoulders. And this is is part of um, Apostle Paul's ethical argument for chastity and holiness in 1 Corinthians 6. 
He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Then he says this, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now, obviously, you, you're, you're a member of Christ in that Christ lives in your body, but you're also a member of Christ in that we are the body of Christ. It has a double meaning. You're a body, listen to what Paul says, you are, you're a member of Christ's body, the church. Shall I then take members of Christ? You're a member and make them members of a prostitute. You know what he's saying? Not only is that you are one with Christ and therefore you join Christ to that other person, but you are also one in the church and you bring the church into this. That's radical. You bring the church into your sexual activity, your sexual life. You bring the church into it. We should be able to ask each other, hey, how's your sex life going? Like, well, that's kind of private. Like, no, it's actually very communal. Like, I hope your sex life is going good because it affects our whole church. To the married people, by the way. That's how it, should, that's how it affects everyone. You bring the body of Christ into this. This is why each member of the church has responsibility for the spiritual well-being of the community as a whole. However, this is, always, this is also the scariest part of being a part of a community. This is the scariest part of being part of a Christian community. Because when we confess struggles, when we admit attractions, the church community has this horrible proclivity to act like cops. To go sin sniffing, to point fingers, to say you're out, okay, you're in. All the while forgetting how you yourself got into this community in the first place. We need a better view of sexual wholeness. How do we become sexually whole? See, the gospel is not ethics. I think you need to realize this. I'm not right now preaching, I wasn't just preaching the gospel. The gospel is not ethics. I don't want you to forget that. When I'm preaching and teaching on doctrine and ethics from scripture, I'm not preaching the gospel. The gospel is how we're made whole. You will never be made whole by just observing sexual ethics from the Bible, ever. You'll be frustrated. You'll be, if you succeed, you'll be some self-righteous jerk that nobody wants to be around. You will never attain wholeness by going, I'm gonna subscribe to all the Bible's ethics. I'm just gonna start doing what the Bible says to do. You'll never be whole that way. You'll be frustrated or you'll be self-righteous. Wholeness comes from the gospel and the gospel's news. The scribes and the Pharisees, John 8, brought a woman who had been caught in the very act of adultery. And they placed her in the middle of the temple on Jesus' teaching. And, and Jesus stops teaching and they say, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses commanded us to, to kill her, to publicly stone her. So what do you say? See, as as a church, we can be guilty of what the Pharisees were guilty of here. We can use people, human beings, made in the image of God to prove our biblical point about marriage or purity or what's wrong with our nation. We take these real lives and hold them up as strawmen and say, they're what's wrong with this society. They're what's wrong with this city. what, What do you want to do with them? What should we do with them? 
verse 6, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And they continued to ask him, and he stood up and he said to them, let, he, let him who is without sin among you be first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one with the older ones first. Now, no one knows what Jesus was writing on the ground. No one knows. Some say he was writing everyone's sin since he knew everyone's sin. Okay, but that might actually pull away from the simplicity and the subtlety of what Jesus was doing here. Like, if Jesus went down and wrote sins, I mean, I don't know if the guy in the back can read it. Like, what is he writing? I don't know, something about you. Oh, gosh, you went, like, and then everyone went, oh, my gosh, you. And it's, that, wasn't that, that wouldn't be as subtle. Maybe Jesus wouldn't just, was just doodling. He just was like, just like writing, it's like scribbling. And I mean, I know artists at this church, that that's the way they learn. It's like they just doodle during a sermon. Like, hey, look what I doodled during your sermon. Like, they learn, that's how they, maybe Jesus was doing that. He just bent down and started doodling. Now, one, one commentator I read said, it could be that Jesus just taking the attention off the woman. I mean, everyone has rocks, like wound up, ready to throw at her to kill her. As soon as Jesus says, go, there's this hurling. So Jesus goes down and writes on the ground, and everyone gets their attention off the woman for a second, and they're like, what is he writing? I don't know. He could have been writing nothing, and he just gets the attention off the woman for a second. Then he stands up, and he says this thing. He who without sin, who, whoever is here without sin, cast the first stone, and he lets that hang there. And then he goes down and writes again. He just lets that, that, that phrase, that sentence hang there in the room. And all of a sudden, the, 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 the Spirit of God could have been working on their hearts like, wait, I'm... I'm not without sin. Like, I, my heart's ill. It could have been just there, or it could, have been there, it could have been there that it hung there because the conviction of where's the man who was committing, that she was committing adultery with. Because according to the same law, they were supposed to kill him too. So maybe they saw their own biasness, their own bigotry, their own wicked heart during this time, just letting that linger. Hey, who's that sin? Cast the first stone. Maybe that, that Jesus let that hang there so they, they saw they were swatting at a fly and swallowing a camel, how they were trying to bring righteousness from the outside in. Just let that hang there. But this is no liberal Christ. Don't think this is a liberal Jesus. The very statement to cast the first stone presupposes that this woman on trial was guilty. He says, in essence, yes, she's guilty. And he who's not, cast the first stone. See, the gospel is good news that God has accomplished for us what we could never achieve by ourselves. You could never, through the law, through morals, or through the ethics that I've been talking about for the last two weeks, come to wholeness or holiness, purity or promise. You can't get in that way. If you think that, You're going to be so disappointed. Verse 9, Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She looks around. She's like, no one. These women's only barren words in the whole story suggest her guilt. She makes no self-defense. She doesn't blame her accuser. She doesn't go, well, that was a, a private thing that I had the doors locked. I mean, it was, like, it was between me and him. Why did they come and grab me? 
She doesn't, she doesn't give a story about how the man was like, had, was so handsome and what. She doesn't make it a story like, this is how I get paid. This is how I make a living, Jesus. She doesn't do any of that. She just looks around and says, wait, no one's here to condemn me. And at this point, she's so vulnerable. And in her vulnerability, Jesus doesn't crush her. Jesus doesn't go, but I condemn you. I'm without sin. I can take you out. He doesn't lecture her. He doesn't say, you know what? What are you doing? Don't you, don't you know your life is, don't you know you, start, you need to stop? He doesn't lecture her. Isaiah 42, when it prophesies about Messiah, says, a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. It's like right at this moment of vulnerability where she could just snap. She can just be like crushed. Her spirit crushed. Everything crushed Jesus. Says, neither do I condemn you. Now, how in the world is that possible? What do you mean Jesus doesn't? Why doesn't Jesus condemn her? Is this a liberal Christ? She doesn't condemn anyone. It's all good. Like, what, what's going on here? Christ was without sin, Matthew Henry's commentary says, and might cast the first stone. He could. But though none more, more severe than he against sin, for he is infinitely holy and just, just and holy, none more compassionate than he to sinners. For he is infinitely gracious and merciful. And this woman finds him so. She comes face to face. And what no moral teaching can do, what no ethical thing can do, no, what no sermon can do, Jesus does by a look. Jesus does by an embrace. Jesus does by a, neither do I condemn you. See, there's actually a story in a story here. This woman's story is one of being judged found guilty, and ends with an execution that never really materializes. Jesus' story is one of being judged, found innocent, but his story ends with an execution that does materialize. He's perfect. Holy. But they crucified him. Now, why? Second Corinthians tells us, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Listen, you will never, ever become sexually holy or whole by ethics. You will not What you and I need is an encounter with the loving, gracious, merciful, holy Jesus. That's it. I've seen it happen. I've seen God change lives. I mean, we're just praying before first service. Like this young gal is just praying, and she's like, God, I want want people in the church to know how you redeem. Like, I was was broken. Me. And and do you know, when when you know when you're sexually just blowing it do you know that you're wrong of course you know ethics of course you know them deep down you know this is probably wrong this doesn't do anything this condemns you what doesn't jesus knowledge of who he is his grace his mercy his love the fact that he went and took our place 
And then he gives us the righteousness of God. What does that do? That's good news. See, ethics are not good news. The gospel is good news. The gospel is not something you do. The gospel is something that you just receive. Christ has done this. He has freed us. He has saved us. He has redeemed us. Now what you do is this. I receive that. And then I'm changed. And then there's this new possibility. The commandment is now, is now a possibility. Go and sin no more. That's a possibility. Ethics are now a possibility. Living in holiness is now a possibility because Christ has changed me. And what I hope and I pray is what happens is as we encounter Jesus, that Jesus does to our sins and our guilt, kind of like what he did to that temple. He purges it. Guys, there's might be people, there's, might, there's voices in your head that have these giant rocks that go, you know what you did. You know how wicked you are. You know how broken you are. You know how that person took advantage of you. You know you should have done something. You know, all these things with rocks over their head, ready to throw at you. You know what Jesus does to those, those, those voices in our head? He purges them like he did the temple. And so well, there's no one, there's no more voices. And like, wait, where are they? They all go. And Jesus goes, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Be free. You're st- and in an instant, in a moment, Christ can make us sexually whole. This is not a, this is not a thing where you're like, oh, okay, this, in five weeks you're going to be sexually whole. You could be made sexually whole right now. This is the promise of Jesus. This is the promise of Christ. This is what Jesus does. And if you in this church are holding rocks, would you drop them in the name of Jesus? If you've been holding on to your sexual purity as a, as a rock, going, but I'm whole but I'm pure. I haven't done anything. Would you drop your rock? Would you yourself experience the love of Christ? And I think it's only through that church, the only through understanding the beauty of the gospel of Jesus and what he's done for us that can, that's the only way that informs our sexual ethics. So when we confess to the church, we can look at each other in the eye and say, Christ has paid for that. Go and sin no more. And we can pray for each other, and we can be vulnerable, and we can confess. Because you know there's sometimes that when you confess sin to God, you're like, God, I just don't feel forgiven. You ever felt that? Like, I just don't feel forgiven. And theology will tell us, well, listen, know that you're forgiven. But there's something about Christian community where you confess sin to community. And you can, a physical person can look at you and say, let's take that to the Lord in prayer. Christ has forgiven you, sister. Christ has forgiven you, brother. And you will leave differently. Let's do that. Let's confess. Let's worship Jesus. God, I thank you for your mercy and your great love and your passion for us as broken sinners. And I pray that, God, you would reform and reorient our church sexually. And I know that doesn't happen by me yelling ethics. It only happens through with an encounter with Jesus Christ. That's it. And God, may we believe that and may we come face to face with Jesus. 
And I ask, God, that as we do, that we would hear your words, that we would hear your voice. That you would change us from the inside out, God. That you would forgive us as we confess to you. And, we, and God, I ask just away with just the spirit of, of, of legalism and pointing. God, I pray that you would just bring us all humbly before who you are and that you would wash us white as snow. In Jesus' name, amen.